2: John
1: Copenhaver and Al Warren. Third on 88.1 FM Los Angeles. Well, one oh two point three FM Riverside.
0: and one oh five oh
1: AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of uh, mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mister Gavin Stone is here right now. We've got a guest waiting, and uh, his book, The Road. To Empire is out now. So, Mr. John Wemlinger, how are you doing?
0: Great. Wonderful to be with you
1: both this evening, uh,
0: John. Um, let's let's talk about
1: your history first of all. So, you you came out of the military. I guess you were a U.S. Army Colonel. Correct. Twenty-seven years of active duty service. Wow. That's, um, that's quite the commitment and quite, quite, a, quite the honor to do that. When you do that and you finish the 27 years, instead of just retiring and taking it easy, you've decided to write some novels. Why? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the history there goes back to uh, 1995, which was my last year on active duty. And, yeah, if you want to do that math, uh, I retired at 27 years of service and uh, this year I've been retired 28 years, a year longer than I served, and that's just mind-boggling to me, but in 1995, my last year on active duty, I was stationed away from my family. My daughter was a senior in high school, had never complained in her entire life about having to pick up everything and move and leave her friends and go on to the next duty station until that senior year of high school. And she wanted to stay where she was in Newport, Rhode Island, and graduate. And um, my wife and I, at the time, made the decision that they would stay in Newport. Uh, my daughter would finish her senior year of high school, and then um, we would reunite after that, after that year. So I had loads of time on my hands, and um, I was reading a lot of Tom Clancy. The original Tom Clancy stuff, uh, The Hunt for Red October, The Cardinal and the Kremlin, and uh, and those kind of classic Clancy books. And I had the thought, what the heck? If Clancy can write <laughs> Anybody a military can. <laughs> thriller, I can write a military thriller. And so I spent uh, the better part of that year after duty hours banging out a thousand-page single-spaced manuscript that told a magnificent story of an Army Command Sergeant Major, highly decorated, very well respected, who gets sent to prison, uh, Fort Leavenworth, for 10 years for a crime he did not commit. I tried to market that and market that and market that, and I wasn't getting any, nothing was coming back to me. Uh, One agent did take the time to respond with a quick, terse, but appreciated note that said, um, I see somewhere in all of this, the seed of a story, but my friend, you seriously need an editor. And so I responded back and said, can you recommend somebody? And he did. And I sent the manuscript off to this person. And uh, a month later, I get a seven page letter back. And I will never forget the first sentence in that letter. It said, it's obvious to me, that you're very proud of the years that you've spent in the military, but what you have to remember is nobody cares. And that's when my skin started to get very tough about writing. That, that manuscript at that point, not because I necessarily wanted it to, but I, I retired from the Army, and I went on to work for Walt Disney for three years out in Asia, and I just flat didn't have the time to devote to the writing, to the manuscript, and it, it just languished. When I came back to the United States, I was I was divorced. I moved in with my daughter for what I told her was going to be a couple of weeks. Turned out to be about six months while I looked for my next job. And uh, that's when I landed in Michigan. And that's when I picked writing up again. It took me about a year to realize that uh, you really don't know that much about the craft of writing good fiction. So I started to attend writers conferences I joined a writers group up here a group that I'm still a member of I went to writers conferences in Chicago and New York City I really started to rub elbows with other writers in 2016 I published my first book it took me 4 years to get it out there to get it right and then the rest have come in about uh, 18 month to 2 year time frames um, and I'm still learning Every day about how to write good fiction. When you think that you're as good as you're going to get in this business, then that's when your books are going to stop selling. You always need to be improving. My publisher says you're only as good as your next project. Um, so what are you working on now? And uh, that's that's how it all came about. It, it was um, a, an evolutionary process, I guess.
1: And 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 you know that's that is typical. You you know the um, the uh, publishing. World is 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 kind of cruel at times, and and so, <laughs> so are some of the agents, and so are the readers too. You know, it's a changed world now. It's very judgmental. Everybody is reviewing everyone online somewhere, and so a lot of that after some years, you learn how to ignore that. I mean, I do for the most part because it's just a lot of noise, and there's just nothing I can do about it. You know what I'm saying? Like so. And if I focus on all the noise and all the people saying bad things, I, I get taken off track of what I'm trying to do in a book, let's say, or in a show. So that's just something that comes along with with the territory. So you just kind of got to ignore it, you know, and move forward. I mean, really, someone gives you a, a bad review or a one-star review and they say something, what, what are you going to do? If someone said something about that with the show, I, I always turn around and say, well, I don't go to your job tell you what to do or what you're doing wrong. I mean some of it is you have to do that. You have to put that wall up and kinda go, listen. Because if if when you write something, you know if if it's got the true meaning and if it's good. There's nothing wrong with yeah, having an editor and having publishers go through it and change and fix things and grammatically do things the right right way. That's all good. It makes it a better and more chance. It is. You know, it's it's all good. But there's no reason to be so negative.
0: The uh, I've come to like the editing part of the business of writing a book almost as much as I like the creating of the first draft of the manuscript, uh, because I realized that, um, well, first of all, I have a lot of confidence in the editors that my publishing company hooks me up with. Um, on the last three projects, I've worked with the same editors, and um, they've gotten to know me, I've gotten to know them, and the result is that the Finished product, the one that is out there on Amazon and is out there on Ingram Spark, um, is a is a pretty good product that that is that is worth the customer's hard earned dollar. But if you look at it from the customer's perspective, there's a lot of stuff out there. When I talk to people about my writing, I, I'm, I'm often asked the question, "Well, um, how do you do it? How do you get your books?" published. And the way I answered that question is that there's good news and bad news. And the good news is that today, anybody can publish a book. The bad news today is anybody can publish a book. And so what that puts on the reader is the onus of having to determine what book is worth my hard-earned money. And um, that's that's a challenge. So uh, if you If you're looking at a book on Amazon and they don't have the first three or four chapters loaded there for you to take a look at and read and get a feel for whether or not it's a book you've finished, then I'm not sure I would buy that book. I mean, that's just me. That's just the way I approach it because of all the noise that you're talking about that's out there and the competition for the reader's dollar. It's stiff in, in in, in this industry today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's flooded, you know, and, and if someone gives you a bad review, you could always look up and find out who they are and go after them. I mean, you're, you've got the experience, right? So you can get out
0: there and, and that'll be the last time they give anyone a bad review. Right. Um, I've, uh, I've been the recipient of a, of a one star review and a, and some two star reviews and they, and they hurt, they sting. But, um, like you said, you just got to brush that off, um, if you're going to be if you're going to be a published author and you're going to put your stuff out there for other people to read, you have to be ready to put your big boy pants on and uh, and take some shots here and there. Yeah.
2: I think the trick is to, to just like kind of overlook the, the one and two star reviews because those those are customers that are probably not going to buy again. You know, concentrate on the three, four, and five star reviews. Listen to what they're saying and and give them more of what they want. You know, because they're they're the customers that are going to come back. Yeah, you know, your one-star reviews, yeah.
1: Don't take any notice of them. Exactly again. Exactly. Well, even the big guys, you know, like uh, Stephen King and and whoever you you consider to be great, even they if you go find their books, they've got some terrible reviews too, right? They might be 70,000 four stars and then 200 bad ones, but they still get them. They you you can't be everything to everyone and that's just No, crazy. you can't. You no, know, you and, and today, like I said, it's too easy. Just as easy as it is to publish a book, it's easy to have someone say something bad about you, right? And, um, I'm starting, I'm really getting used to it now myself. It doesn't really, it doesn't sting so much. After, after the Tucker Carlson, when he came after me last April, it's been, a, it's been a year and a half. When he did that, that kind of really shook me, uh, cause I never had someone that, that, you know, um, let's say popular, you know, yeah, with that, was that an platform. audience. Yeah, was actually, platform. yeah. And to come after me. And I was like, whoa. So I kind of, it wasn't so much that it was him because, you know, who cares? Look at him. But it was more about that he had the audience. And then the, the response on online was incredible. Like the, the people that were saying awful things to me for about two months. Yeah. And, um, but the thing is then, then you start, you know, after that kind of a slam, I realized that. That's just part of it, you know, and there's really nothing going to happen. No one came to my door. No one went to any of the stations. Nobody really, it's just a whole lot of talk. And you being military backgrounds, no one's going to come after you anyway, but
0: yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, hopefully not. I guess, I guess, I I guess
0: the, I guess the, um, I have something that I want to say. I have a reason why I write the novels that I write and, um, if if you don't if you don't like that reason or you don't care to try and understand that reason then just don't read my books but if you're if you're a veteran or if you're currently serving in the military or if you're someone that wants to find out a little bit about what the military culture in the United States is like then that's why i write my books they're out there i try and pick an issue that's impacting our Military or a veterans community, an example of that would be PTSD or a related example might be the uh, epidemic of suicides that occurs, not just within the military, but within our country. And then I wrap a story around that issue to try and make it clear to the reader how that issue impacts the people that, that are, that are serving, that are, that are protecting our American way of life. And do you find that, um,
1: that, um, the public doesn't really get or know what it's like? Do you think that that's, it's, uh, it's taken wrong? Do you think when we watch Jack Reacher and now, now I'm not attacking the writer of that or the show, <laughs> yeah. but when you're watching some sort of action, you know, the guy's in the military and he's superstar and he's great and everyone loves it and all that stuff. But do you think that they really get it right in that way, or do they miss out on a lot of that stuff? I,
0: I, I think, um, don't get me lo- wrong. I love the Jack Reacher character and I love the novels and the movies about him. Um, I, I like those kind of that action adventure, but, um, it's interesting that, that this kind of a segue into the road to empire. It, that is a family saga. And um, some people that have read it have asked me, is this an autobiography? I have to kind of admit that, yeah, it is. That wasn't the reason that I wanted to write the book. Uh, again, I'm, I write about what I know, and that's the military and military culture. And so The Road to Empire is a story about a young man, senior in high school, um, sitting in class on the morning of September the 11th, 2001. And the teacher walks in and breaks the news to them about what's happening in New York City on that tragic morning. And uh, as the day rolls on, Jack Wrigley, the hero of the book, he doesn't know exactly how events of that day are going to change his life. He just feels that they will somehow. Two years later... He finds he's turned down an appointment to West Point. He doesn't. He doesn't want to go there. Um, His dad's wealthy um, and can pay his way to go to any college in the United States that he wants to go to. Um, And he doesn't. Jack doesn't see how a four-year degree from the military academy is going to move him to what he really wants to do, which turns out to be a career in aviation and more specifically aviation maintenance. So he. Instead of going to West Point, he goes to Western Michigan University, which has an excellent aviation science program, and he's learning to become a pilot. He's in his second year of school, and he finds out that two of his best friends from high school have just been killed in Afghanistan. And now that conflict becomes very personal to him, and he he grows a conscience and enrolls in the Army ROTC program at Western Michigan University and is eventually commissioned as a second lieutenant. And because he's a rated pilot, the Army does. Despite what people may think about the Army, they occasionally do get the round peg in the round hole, <laughs> and Jack is sent to Fort Rucker, Alabama, to learn to fly helicopters. And um, the story uh, takes off from there, and it's... The story of this meteoric career, because he's a great officer. He is technically competent, works well with others, and he's, he's ramping up very quickly to become a general earlier than most of his peers would ever be considered for that. And a family crisis occurs, and he has to make a very difficult decision. That happens in our military more often than anybody in the general public understands. It is a very difficult road to hoe for not just the member that's serving, but for their their spouse, their children, the grandmother, the grandfather um, on both sides of the family, the aunts and the uncles. It, it becomes a challenge, and that's what the road to empire is meant to portray and to help, to help people understand. Because I think you're right. I, I, you alluded to the fact that maybe the general public just doesn't understand what that culture is like in America. And they don't because there's so few that serve today. We're an all-volunteer force. We became that in 1973. Today, the strength in all the military services is the smallest that it's been since pre-world war 2 but yet we are well equipped we're the best trained we're highly professional i have great confidence in our military to do what they're expected to do but they have to do it through a whole series of challenges that i honestly believe the general public is clueless about and so that's why that's why i write i try i try to to be a window for those 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 people that they can read and they can see and learn what that culture is like.
2: And you said this was a, a semi-autobiographical style um, kind of piece of work. Is, is that the reason why you decided to write this from the first person's perspective? <laughs> and and what were the other challenges involved writing from that, that kind of perspective?
0: Gavin, you're, you're very perceptive. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, that while I didn't necessarily want it to be, autobiographical or semi-autobiographical, I had to write this book from the first person because I wanted the uh, poignancy to be there. And I thought the first person was the best way to deliver that. I also wanted it to be kind of a conversation that would go on with the reader as, as they're reading the book. And I, and again, I thought the first person was the best way to do that. But This is the first book that I've ever written in the first person, and it was a real challenge. Uh, It is so easy to slip into the omniscient narrator, and um, i got to tell you, as I was writing it and then editing what I'd written, I can't tell you the number of times I'd slap my head against my forehead and say, well, there you did it again. You're out of first person. You're back into the omniscient narrator. Get back at it and fix this. So. Yeah, it's it's a it's a challenge.
2: Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. And and how did you manage with the the kind of the other characters within the book, writing it from that perspective? Did you find that that uh, more difficult, or did you find that was actually easier to do it from that perspective?
0: There, there was a challenge there, and I actually went to my writers group and um, and and ran a couple things by them um, and got some very helpful suggestions as to how to pull it off. So um, there's There's the first person from the perspective of Jack Wrigley, who is the book's main protagonist. But then I also needed to get in there the first person from the perspective of Annie Wrigley, who is his girlfriend on September the 11th when that tragedy happens, and who becomes his wife upon his graduation from college And the two of them launched this military career together. And I wanted some chapters to tell the story from first person in Annie's perspective. And so when you have two or three chapters and it's all in Jack's perspective, but now you're shifting to a chapter where Annie needs to react, for example, to uh, his first deployment. Overseas To a combat zone. You've got to somehow make it clear to the reader that the I in this chapter isn't Jack. It's it's Annie. And she's alone at home at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and coping with this um, immense feeling of solitude, uh, desolation, isolation. Um, he's gone. He's he's in harm's way. I'm left with our young daughter, um, the dog, and, and, there, and there's that empty feeling at the pit of her stomach. To tell that through an omniscient narrator is not the same as telling it through her eyes in, in her first person. And, but the readers, the readers got to know that, oh, the first person here has shifted from Jack to now a conversation with Annie. And they need to know that within like the first sentence of that chapter. So listen, how do you create
1: that character like Jack Riley? How does that develop in your mind and what kind of relationship do you end up having with that character? Do you see them? Do you see, do you see them? Do you feel them? Do you hear voices? Like (laughs) where, where are you at with your character?
0: So uh, I, I, I listened to your interview with uh, the marvelous Tess Garrison and, uh, and you had a similar question of her about how she creates her characters. And and yeah, um, I'm a pantser. And I think Tess, if I remember right, said she was a pantser as well. If I had to do this, starting by writing some kind of a detailed outline, chapter by chapter, and in each chapter, what each character is going to be doing, um, I think after about uh, an hour of that, my head would explode because because I'm not that um I, I I I don't approach the task of writing a book um from that level of organization I have an idea about what the issue is I have an idea about what the story is that I want to spin around that I have a vague idea of the character the the main protagonist and maybe the next most supporting protagonist in the book after those generalizations the the rest of the the character development the settings and the arc of the plot that all comes to me as I'm as I'm setting um, stream of consciousness banging it out on the computer now the problem with that approach and and I and I think Tess might have said the same thing but The problem with that is that that approach requires, uh, in my view, a whole lot of self-editing. And so the way I do it is I'll write a chapter and then I'll close the computer up and go walk the dog and not come back to that chapter until the next day. But before I go on to writing the, the second chapter, I go back and reread that first chapter quite often By the time I've reread that first chapter, it's significantly different than what it was when I closed the computer the day before. And I write like that. So the third day I'll review the first two chapters that I've written, self-edit them again. So by the time I've gotten through the, the book, uh, the the first draft of the manuscript, I've probably self-edited that book 10 or 12 times. And, And at that point, I would have to say that uh, right now, at, at the point I'm at with that first manuscript, first draft of the manuscript, I am so close to the forest that I couldn't even see a tree if it fell on And that's when, and that's when I start to work with my publisher and, uh, and the wonderful editors that, that they have connected me with on, on all of my books. So are you starting with the idea? Like when you talk about the subtext of it,
1: you know, some sort of theme, a meaning that you want the reader to get because you're talking about what you know, you know, the military life. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're in that place, so do you have the idea, the theme first and then you create the characters and then add them to it or put them through that, what you're going to, or how does that start for you?
0: No, I think that's, you just, you just said it. Um, I start with the, with the issue. So um, for example, winter's bloom, the, f- the first book that I published took me four years to get that one right. 2012, I started to write it um, at the, at the behest of my wife. I was uh, disgruntled at that point in time. I had um, just been laid off from a really, really good job working with troubled youth um, here in Michigan and, um, I was angry. I was upset about that. And, uh, my wife was the one that said, if you don't get better, you're just going to get bitter. Um, she was a middle school counselor. And, uh, so that gives you some idea of the mental level that I was operating on at that point, at that point in my life. But she also said, why don't you write? Why don't you start writing again? And, and, and I did in 2012, but, I still had to learn the craft. So it, it was 2016 before Winters Bloom came out, but the subject of PTSD was the driver for that book. And, and, and I started with that and it goes on from there to the main character, a guy by the name of, of Rock, um, who was a Vietnam veteran comes horribly wounded in the war, lucky that he was able to save the leg that was so badly shot up. But a an, a, an orthopedic surgeon does that. Uh, Rock rehabilitates, um, but he's, he's left with a, a limp for the rest of his life. He, he comes back to the United States, rehabs from his wounds, goes to work for General Motors for 30 years. But in 2000, 2008, 2009, when the recession is really starting to hit Michigan, He is told, um, here's your gold watch. We no longer need your services. You're being forced to retire because we're closing all of our plants here in Flint, Michigan, which is where he was from. He's angry. He's bitter about that. And uh, he's a processor. And so he decides that he's going to go spend the winter on the edge of Lake Michigan. Now, I had to tell you, nobody goes to Lake Michigan in the wintertime unless you want to freeze to death. I mean, it's really a cold it's beautiful, but it's windy, it's cold, and um and and he rents this place along the edge of Lake Michigan just trying to figure out what his next move is going to be. And while he's there, he meets the widow that lives next door who is now 5 years after her husband's died and she is stuck in her grief. And the re- the rest of the book is how the two of them from Really, she's fabulously wealthy. He's a blue-collar worker from Flint. Financially, he's okay, but he's far from wealthy. But it's the story of how these two people from opposite universes come together to, uh, she helps him with his PTSD. He helps her overcome her grief. It's not a romance because it does not necessarily end happily ever after. I would tell listeners that it reads beautifully but it's not a romance because it does not end happily ever after and so it was i guess if i would encapsulate how it all came to me it was you want to write about ptsd create this vietnam vet he needs help you create this fabulously wealthy widow and then you put them in this scene along the lake michigan shoreline and and describe how these two universes are going to come together to help one another. And I think, th- I think that's probably the way all six of my books have, uh, have worked out. Does he dump her in the lake
1: and she freezes and he takes her money?
0: No, but you're you're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're not, you're not far off the path there. There's a, there's a scene in there that's called, that I call the rescue scene in the book. And, um, it, it's a pivot, it's a pivotal scene. That, that really turns things around for Rock and his acceptance by not necessarily the widow, but by the widow's family that is kind of skeptical about this guy that she's just met on the beach. Yeah, it's uh, and, and that chapter, by the way, I'll tell a little story about that chapter. It's pivotal. and I, And I had written it. And I thought it was just really well done. And my wife is my first reader, so when I'm done with the first draft of the manuscript, I give it to her and keep my fingers crossed. And she came back to me and she said, "Um, this chapter here, I said, oh, yeah, that's the rescue chapter. And she said, yeah, it's not your best work. I want a divorce. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't seem very plausible to me. Um, I think you should work on this. Well, I blew her off, uh, and I sent it off to my editor. And uh, he, he was a wonderful gentleman, deceased now, and I and I really miss my interface with him. He's just a wonderful man. But John and I were working together, and uh, we, we were working together with email exchanges. We never were, were speaking to one another, and the phone rings one day, and it's John Paul. You know, we go through the pleasantries, and he said, yeah, I'm calling you about the rescue chapter. said, I don't think it's very plausible. I don't think it's your best work. Almost identical to what my wife had said. And I accused accused the two of them of collusion, which they both vehemently denied. But then that chapter became a serious uh, rewrite, really makes the book turn in a in a much better direction because of their input. So, how do you get into the emotion of this?
1: Like when you're when you're uh, writing characters like this, and it's dealing with you know such uh, deep things and stuff like that. When you are you are you expressing a lot of your own experience? You might say, like you know PTSD and stuff like that.
0: I I think I think yes. So a couple of comments in that regard. I I think. When writers, especially writers of fiction, I can't speak so much for the, the nonfiction stuff, but if you're a writer of fiction, you almost have to be an actor. And you act through your fingertips on the keyboard. So you have to get into a certain emotional mood that is set by the arc of the plot and the scene that you have that particular part of the book set in. And through your description of the setting and through the dialogue that you write, you're playing the role, you're playing the part of the character or characters that you're um, writing about in that particular part of the book. The other thing that I would point out is that while all my characters are fictional and I really try and choose names for them that are no way related to the people in my life, in my experience that I have met and known and worked with and, and, and dealt with almost all of those, almost every character and except the really bad ones, um, the, the, the good characters, the protagonists, they're all a combination of people that I have known, worked with and grown to respect. Um, and I, and I build them around those those memories of those people the bad ones are just um i mean i enjoy writing about them but it's good that none of them are truly in my life because (laughs) because they're really evil well you've Mm -hmm. met gavin so
2: i see (laughs) i I think i've been killed off in a few people's books i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) so with with six books under your belt at the moment you, you've obviously had a, a bit of a, a variety of, of kind of um, different perspectives and that kind of thing that you've done. But what would you say has been the kind of the, the, the best lesson? If you could go back to when you were doing your first one, what would you say has been your biggest and best lesson uh, uh, fr- from the experience of writing all those books?
0: That's a really tough question, but it's a fair que- it's a fair question. I, I I said it earlier. The thing that I think I've gotten so much better at is not only the self-editing that I do of the work that I initially create. I've also gotten much, much better at listening to and taking very seriously the suggestions that my editors at Mission Point Press come back to me with as they read um as they read the manuscript and um, you know, I AI is, is uh, in my writer's group, we're constantly in the last three or four meetings talking about worrying about speculating about the impact of artificial intelligence on people like us. Um, you guys included who write, I don't use any AI when I write my manuscript, uh, I want that to all be me. I don't believe that any of the editors that I work with use AI as they edit my work. I don't. I don't want to use AI as as I'm editing because um, I, I want my emotion as I'm creating that character and refining that character in my books. I want to. I want them to reflect the same emotion that I'm feeling about the issue that I'm writing about. And I'm not sure AI could ever do that for us. So I've become a real aficionado, I guess would be kind of a right word, of the editing process. We talked about this earlier. Um, It's no secret. I'm self-published. So I pay to get my books into the marketplace um, a good portion of the fee that I pay to my publisher to get my book out there is paid to these editors that I work with. And what I have learned as I've worked with them is you have to consider their work as like you're paying tuition for a graduate level creative writing class. You know, it's like any college course. You have the option of going to class or not going to class. If you're paying your money. It seems to me that the smart move then is to go to class. Rather than getting upset about what they're suggesting, take a good look at it, take it to heart, see how you can rework the part that's that's galling them. When you do that, I believe, my experience has been over six novels now, you're going to wind up with a piece that's ready for the marketplace that is so much better, so much more refined than that first manuscript that you produced uh, all by your lonesome. There you have it. Violence. Do you think about the violence you write on the page?
1: Because it is kind of that sort of a, you know, are you thinking about it? Do you kind of do it in a cautious way or do you just go all out? I go all out. Oh, Uh,
0: good. Yeah, yeah. I have a book. Um, It was the... um, it was the fourth book that I published. The title of it is The Widow and the Warrior. And I released that book. I, I live in Michigan. Our governor here is Gretchen Whitmer. I don't know if you're familiar with what happened about two years ago, but two weeks after I published that book, my wife and I are driving through the Upper Peninsula. We're listening to a news station uh, on Sirius Radio and uh, breaking news. A bunch of men... Uh, Militiamen have been arrested in Michigan for plotting to kidnap and potentially execute Governor Whitmer. Vigilante justice and the militia are part and parcel of what the, the widow and the warrior is all about. And that book wasn't out in the marketplace two weeks before this news broke about Governor Whitmer and her potential kidnapping. I've created in that book some of my most evil characters. They are really bad people. And they have no moral compass. Several of them are for hire killers. So if the money's right, they're they're going to take you out. The language is harsh. I had a, a lovely woman, rather elderly, come up to me at a book signing I was doing. And uh, she literally put her finger on the end of my nose and said, you used that word 228 times. And she had <laughs> counted the number of times i had used the f word in the widow and the warrior and she said you have young man a better vocabulary than that i'm 78 years old so i'm not a young man but i in her view i guess i was you have a better vocabulary than that and uh, after i recovered uh, my senses a little bit i just looked at her and said yes ma'am I do have a better vocabulary than that, but these are some of the worst characters I've ever created, and this is how they're going to talk. They are not going to say, aw shucks, golly gee darn. They're going to use that word, and that's why it appears in the book. I don't, I don't think I ever convinced her that it was a good reason for writing it the way it was written. It won a gold award in the Colorado Independent Publishers Association Mystery Throw category.
2: Congratulations. you' <laughs> got the, the count right <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, I don't know if she did or not. I, I knew th- I knew that word was in there a lot, but <laughs> again, that's the way those characters are gonna they're gonna act. And so when I was writing that dialogue, I was writing character with those bad guys.
2: That's the way to do it. Yeah, you should have told her to F off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well,
1: maybe not, you know. Yeah. You get slapped. You get slapped.
0: I, I might have caused caused a, a serious heart condition had I done yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, you know, save it for your book. You yeah,
0: know. exactly. Exactly.
1: So now, listen, are you doing uh, social media? Do you have a website set up? How do people get a hold of
0: you besides you know, maybe the local bar. Uh, So I'm on Facebook, uh, John Wemlinger at author. And I have a pretty good presence on Facebook. I also have a website, www.johnwemlinger.com. There are several places in that website where you can click and you can contact me by, by email. I tell every reader as I sign a book and hand it to them. I love feedback. You can contact me through my website, and I usually stick my card in there as a, as a bookmark for them. And I, and I certainly appreciate you guys out there on the, uh, on the other coast uh, because um, I, I do pretty well regionally around here. My, my books are all set in Michigan for the most part. Operation Light Switch is the only exception. But we have this scenic byway that I live very close to. It's called M22. Michigan State Route 22. And it was designated, um, I don't know, five or six years ago by NBC on the Today Show and in USA Today as one of the nation's most scenic byways. It winds right along the Lake Michigan shoreline. It goes about through farm country, through forest. Um, it's, it's a gorgeous drive for about 85 miles. And I set a lot of my books in these little small communities that are strung out along this scenic byway. Um, and so a lot of people around here like my books because they like the familiarity of places they've been to, visited, stayed at. But my issues that I write about that I want people to understand are are for every American. You guys are really my first big exposure out there on the... Uh, on the uh, other coast, this is a this is a great opportunity for me, and I certainly appreciate um, you giving me this opportunity to interview with you both.
1: Oh, it's our it's our pleasure, really, and and hopefully we get you lots of
0: bad reviews.
1: And <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've got tough skin. Bring them on, Alan. Bring them on. Yeah,
1: you you know get inundated with negativity and bad stuff. I'll get it, tucker on it, you next. You it know. keeps
0: it keeps one humble. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. Gives you something to do, chasing them down, taking them out for your next, you know. <laughs> well, anyway, so now your new, your newest book is out, uh, The Road to Empire. And our guest is the author of this and many more. And we'll have everything up on our website so they can find you. Thank you for being on the show, John Wemlinger.
0: Great talking with you both and great, uh, great talking with your listeners.
1: Pleasure to have you.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To
1: find out more about our guests,
2: hosts, or shows,
1: go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over
2: for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah.
1: Good night. This is a production of Something Weird
2: Media. I'll be back.